Welcome to Everything STEAM. I'm your host, Sam Stanford. As a physicist and structural engineering training with Jacobs Engineering, I've made many connections with some bright individuals who are either working, studying, or self-taught and passionate about our particular topics of discussion. This episode is all about the four fundamental forces of the universe that we understand to this day in modern physics. Without these forces, which are gravity, electromagnetism, strong and weak force, life wouldn't be able to exist, let alone give you the capabilities to enjoy GPS, fast cars, suntans, or even the ability to complete your bodily functions. That's why my guest stars and I are so excited to share this information with you. That way you can gain a greater appreciation for physics and also life itself. Throughout this episode, we break down each fundamental force and give you examples of why they are so important. So speaking of our guest stars, first meet Dylan Cottrell. Dylan holds two degrees from West Virginia University in physics and economics and is currently pursuing a master's in physics at Stony Brook University. In reference to physics, Dylan started the West Virginia University Quantum Technology Club and has worked for a company called Inside Quantum Technology as a market analyst. In his free time, he enjoys playing video games and reading. Sounds pretty similar to what I do in my free time, just less video games and more podcasting. Our second and returning guest star is Eva Beeching. Eva graduated with a BS in Computational Physics in May of 2021 from Slippery Rock University. Currently, she is pursuing a PhD in Applied Physics and Material Science at Northern Arizona University. Eva is also a researcher at the Center for Materials and Interfaces Research and Applications, or MIRA, where she works on gold nanoclusters for biological systems. Well, alrighty, now that you've met our guest stars and know what vibrations you're about to consume, we're going to hop into our first commercial. But when we return, you'll get an introduction into the four forces and a proper discussion about the gravitational force. Cheers. Hi, everybody. Hope you're doing well, and thanks for tuning in to the Four Fundamental Forces episode. Before we begin, I wanted to thank both Eva and Dylan for being on the show, so thanks for being here. Thank you for having me on the show. Absolutely. Okay, so I have a really neat piece of history before we get into the first force because it highlights just how far we've come since 322 BC, where Aristotle, one of the great philosophers of ancient Greece, proclaimed that all the matter in the universe was made up of four basic elements, earth, air, fire, and water. And yeah, I was thinking of the band Earth, Wind, and Fire too, <laughs> but we can't forget about water. And that's what you know Aristotle thought the universe was made of at the time. And he postulated that there had to be two forces that governed this matter. Gravity, which was the tendency for earth and water to sink, and then levity, the tendency for air and fire to rise. And this is, of course, not the case today, but it was the spark of the division of the matter and the forces that we've discovered over time. For some background, through the discovery of the Big Bang and tracing methods back to the Planck epoch, or the primordial soup, so to speak, of the cosmological timescale, which is the very first instances of the universe, the science community has been able to appropriate the formation of the four fundamental forces. So essentially, as energy dissipated and space began to cool after the Big Bang, forces began to coalesce, starting with the strong nuclear force that formed the first nuclei, consisting of protons and neutrons, then the electroweak forces that consist of the electromagnetic and the weak nuclear force created the earliest elements of hydrogen, helium, and lithium. 
And then lastly, gravity hopped into the scene where stars, galaxies, and our earliest solar systems of our universe formed. So throughout this episode, we are going to trace back in time to the end of the Planck epoch and discuss the four forces created from the soup of the Big Bang. So without further delay, let's dive into the first of the four fundamental forces that govern the laws of physics, and that is the gravitational force. So Dylan, you've got the floor, my man. So gravity, very interesting force and also extremely mysterious. It seems to cause a lot of problems in some other areas of physics. But anyway, while I explain gravity to you guys, I'll tell you basically, you know, what it is, you know, how we observe it and everything. And also, you know, how it might be useful and how we can potentially use gravity and our, how our devices depend on it. And uh, how large this force is. Gravity is uh, one of the biggest forces, one of the most widespread in the universe. So gravity, I mean, we all kind of know what gravity is, right? You know, when you think of gravity, you might think of an apple falling on Newton's head, right? And that's exactly what it is. It's this force that brings everything in the universe together. Essentially, everything experiences the force of gravity, and surprisingly, even energy. Of course, there are exceptions, and physicists are working every day to try and figure out why there are exceptions. Essentially, some particles don't have it, and then they don't experience the gravitational force, which is pretty weird. But anyway, let's get back to it. Gravity affects everything uh, that we can observe in the universe. Even the atoms in our body can feel the uh, gravitational pull from atoms millions of light years away. This force acts over extremely large distances, and it's part of the reason why galaxies form the way that they do. There are problems, of course, with our current understanding of gravity. For example, we don't quite understand why galaxies get as big as they do and why they can spin as quickly as they do. This force isn't perfectly understood. But So if you guys wanted to add anything to this, anything you wanted to throw in? I do, because you talked about how gravity is on the macroscopic scale. And it's really a force that's super important on a big scale. One thing that I found really interesting when you said like an atom here is affected by an atom millions of light years away is kind of interesting. I don't know if you if you ever like paid attention to whenever we were trying to head to the moon in the late 60s. And there was the saying from a lot of the commentators whenever the Apollo team would, you know, they've escaped Earth's gravity. And that's not the case. You never actually escape Earth's gravity. You can go an infinite distance away from the earth and still feel its gravity there's gravity acting all around us it's a field the the sun acts on us the the moon acts on us uh, when i say us i just mean objects wherever there's matter there's gravity so that's one thing i wanted to add plus it's kind of a cool tidbit to you know the apollo mission when we talk about the apollo missions and we talk about orbits also how the heck do we escape gravity right in reality it's more like we are just moving in a direction away from the current force of gravity fast enough to like get away from earth we're really just like dodging earth <laughs> orbit's a strange phenomenon i have something that's a little bit different i'm not going to delve really deep into the particle physics here but one of the reasons that gravity is so mysterious like you said is i'm not sure if this is true or if it's changed since the last time i've heard about this, but the other fundamental forces, which we'll talk about, strong force, weak force, have particles associated with them as force carriers. 
and we can generate those particles and see them in experiments versus gravity. They haven't yet discovered like a graviton that would carry this force and which is why it's so hard to like predict what it's going to do and see what it's going to do because we haven't discovered this particle yet. Right. We don't see the particles. We just see its effects and we can kind of model that. Yeah. Oh, I also have something else to add. And it's more of a historical thing, which is kind of cool. So a lot of people coin gravity based on Isaac Newton, but that's actually not the case. And it was also Aristotle that first, you know, had the idea of gravity, like I said before. And then Galileo Galilei actually was the first person to understand like masses hit the ground at the same time. And he did these experiments on actually on the Tower of Pisa, which was really cool. And it laid the groundwork for Newton then to mathematically prove gravity. And then that's only just one type of gravity. I know you didn't mention that at one point. We actually have two different ways that we use gravity to solve problems. We have Newtonian gravity, and then we have Einstein's general theory of relativity. Two different things. I don't know if you want to add to that. If not, I can I could kind of explain a little bit more. It's strange, right? One models, you know, just the basic force, almost not a microscopic level, but like on a smaller level. Newtonian physics works for like low energy, smaller objects. But then we have general relativity, and it completely changes the, the way that we look at reality. Newtonian physics says nothing about the curvature of space-time. General relativity is this beautiful formulation of physics that represents our our entire universe basically as a two-dimensional flat and uh, basically the larger the mass or energy the more the curvature of this plane this 2d plane bends there's even a potential for waves to form in the fabric of space and time we call these gravitational waves they're very interesting an interesting question I had when I heard about the gravitational wave was, uh, what are the units? Okay, what do you measure? How do you measure gravitational waves? It's hertz. They can measure them in hertz per second. I, I was like, how the heck do you even... The entire definition of a hertz of time is wrapped up in this general relativistic you know, formulation. It's so weird, but they measure them in hertz. Another thing I wanted to mention is like... Quantum mechanics and gravity don't really get along. We don't. Really, I don't think we're going to talk about quantum mechanics uh, until we get to you, you and Eva's part. I got the more classical physics, but yeah, quantum mechanics and gravity don't get along, and so much so that um, things like stars and black holes, there's a lot of mystery behind these these objects because we don't quite understand them perfectly just yet. Wow, I have one more thing to add, and then I'll let Eva talk. So I thought it would be pretty important because I know we're talking some big picture concepts and also some very uh, in-depth concepts here about gravity. But I kind of wanted to just, you know, say it in layman's terms here that there's a big difference between weight and mass. And a lot of people, I don't think they really understand that difference. And, and that is, you know, mass is pretty much how much stuff you're made of in, in real simple terms. Whereas weight is the force that your mass exerts due to gravitational attraction. So say if you lived, well, you do, you live on Earth, right? You might have a mass of like 10 kilograms, but then you actually weigh about 98 kilonewtons. You know, whereas if I dropped you on Mars, the gravity is different. 
actually about a third of that on Earth. So if you notice something, gravity is the difference between weight and mass in a simplistic explanation if you're holding your mass constant. So that's the difference between weight and mass. That way people can kind of grasp an understanding of that. Yeah, that's a really valuable point. I feel like I didn't learn that until I decided to study physics in, in college, honestly. Yeah, it's very interesting. Oh, and uh, for the people that, that want to, you know, lose weight, oh, you're losing weight, but you have to lose mass to lose weight if you're staying in the same gravity. So it's really a more of a, a concept of losing the amount of stuff that you're made of, really. <laughs> yeah, these are really good points. I think it's really important also to like, you guys have mentioned this a couple times, but connecting that really long range scale gravity to like the gravity that we experience is really hard to do because like you said it asks at infinite distances so how do we connect like you know the difference between weight and mass to like the formation of a star <laughs> well, gravity is like really useful to us because of gps i know that they have to correct uh for relativistic effects with gps which is insane like literally they use general relativity right right now like on our phones we're talking with corrections from a satellite. I don't know if it's, you know, if it is, it's probably corrected for relativistic shifts. You know what that's called? That's actually called geodesics, if I'm not mistaken. And then also, if we're talking relevancy here, another great example of that is avionics, trying to get from point A to point B, you know, in an airplane. Uh, nobody actually flies in a straight line because you're traveling a curved surface. Yeah, I said curved surface, you dang flat earthers. So we use <laughs> geodesics and relativistic gravity to be able to get from point A to point B in an efficient manner, so to speak. So yeah, those are two really good points for you know Einstein's theory of general relativity. Now, on, on the aspect of, of simplistic uh, Newtonian gravity, it's the stuff that I do every day with structural engineering because, you know, you're at a fixed point. You're not really running curvature whenever you're trying to design one singular building in one singular aspect. You're just dealing with the force between one mass and another mass. So it's just simple gravity. So there's two different ends to the spectra, really. And we have to kind of weigh and measure what's tailor-made to the situation that we have. Right. That's a really interesting point, too. It's like, Maybe we'll never get a master equation for physics. You know, maybe we'll just have to use equations for particular situations, and that's just how it'll be. Because Newtonian physics works great for a lot of the stuff we do. Heck yeah. Yeah. Helped uh, put us on the moon. It's going to help us get to Mars. It's going to, you know, continue to build us great buildings, and it'll help us build buildings on Mars and the moon as well. So, I mean, it serves its purpose. Perfect. So, we started with the gravitational force that warps space-time and binds macroscopic matter, so to speak, such as our sun, our Earth, and the many planets of the cosmos. And after this commercial break, you'll get to learn about the second fundamental force, the electromagnetic force, or EM for short. So stay tuned. Have you ever been standing in the shower, looking at the ingredients on your shampoo bottle, and noticed that water is always the first ingredient? Well, I have. After a little research, I discovered that shampoo is over 80% water, which is kind of like dumping bottled water on your head while you're standing in a shower. And that's why I'm excited that I found Seabar, a disposable plastic free hair care line that cleans up ocean trash with every purchase. 
Not only does Seabar pick up one pound of ocean trash for every item ordered, but their salon quality shampoo and conditioner concentrates come from refillable applicators, kind of like deodorant tubes. Just twist them up, rub it on over your hair a couple times, and then just lather it up like you normally would. My favorite part is how long they last. I've personally been using the same Seabar for three months now, and I've barely used any. So not only does it help save the environment, it's also effective, efficient, and most importantly, it saves me money. If you would like to try a better way to wash your hair, head on over to cbar.com and use our special code STEAM for 15% off your first order. Cbar, shampoo done right for you and the planet. What's going on, everyone? Welcome back to the second segment of the Four Fundamental Forces. By the way, at the end of the episode, fill out the poll wherever you get your podcast from. We want to know which of the four fundamental forces is your favorite. Also, if you want to further the conversation, send us an email or DM us on social media. We are always interested in a conversation on STEAM topics. So for this segment, we are going to be talking about the electromagnetic force. I won't throw out too many spoilers, so I will just hand it off to Dylan again to enlighten you on the electromagnetic force. So it's all you. I'm going to tell you a little bit about electromagnetism. The uh, field itself is kind of weird if you don't know about something called charge. Really, it's not that complicated, okay? I guess the way I would describe it is like you have uh, heads or tails on a coin. It's either one or the other when it comes to charge, okay? Of course, large things in, in everyday life, we don't really have to deal with charge that much because those things are usually pretty neutral. If you've ever you know, accidentally shocked yourself on a piece of metal or something after you've rubbed your feet on the carpet, you've experienced the electromagnetic force. This is what creates uh, electricity. This is what allows us to communicate. Right now, as you're listening to this podcast, you're using the electromagnetic force. I mean, it's literally the thing that we use the most every day to survive, really. So, yeah, you have to think about charge. I, I would say electromagnetism is a strange thing. Because described by a field of mathematics called like vector calculus. And of course, you need a little bit of differential equations. But it's not the math that's important. The weird thing about this force is that it's not really like perfectly understood in the sense like you kind of use math to describe what you see happening, but you can't actually see an electric field. Isn't that kind of weird? You know, it's not like something tangible that you can touch, but it affects everything that it moves around. It's, it's very strange. Basically, positive and negative charges want to be together, and um, positives and positives and negatives and negatives, they push against each other, and, uh, and then they can start moving around and such. And a really interesting thing actually happens when you accelerate charged objects. So if you take, you know, let's say an electron, okay? It's negatively charged. And this is the electron, okay? Well, you can't see me. But if you take the electron, you drag it really fast, basically you'll create an electromagnetic wave. So when these charged particles accelerate, they actually emit radiation. It's called electromagnetic radiation. It's not deadly, most of it anyways. And this is actually what causes us to be able to see light. It's these charges moving around in our wires, literally. So I wanted to ask Sam and Eva here if they wanted to add to my spiel about electromagnetism and maybe tell me if I said anything sillier. Yeah, I think there's a lot to be said about electromagnetism just because it, it comes in so many forms and it has so many different uses and it's passing through our bodies at all time moments of the day and our brains are producing it and, and it all really does come down to just charge, like charges repel and different charges attract and 
that's just the universe trying to balance itself out. And as a result, we get all these applications of it and we have light and we have x-rays and radio waves and uh, everything like that. So I would just add like, it just permeates literally everything. And it's the reason we can observe things, you know? Oh man. So electrons though, I mean, okay. Sam, should I shut up about quantum or say nothing? Should I say nothing about quantum? What do you think? Let me add one thing before you touch on quantum. Okay. So let's just talk about atoms for a hot second. Because without electromagnetism, we wouldn't be able to have the full atom. There's other forces at work there, but the ability to have electrons orbiting the nucleus is because of the electromagnetic force. You know, you talked about point charges, you know, like you said, an electron in space. Those are point charges, and those create an electric field. This is what's really cool, and this is also coined as the Lorentz force, where as if you have a particle in space and it's just sitting there, it only has an electric field, but then when you move it, it generates a magnetic field. So your charged particles can have both an electric field and a magnetic field at the same time. And that's where over time we said, oh my gosh, it's the same dang thing. And then they married it to the electromagnetic force. So that's, I guess that's just one thing I wanted to throw out there to understand that it's charged particles, but then, you know, it marries things together in the form of atoms and then atoms form molecules. And then we get chemistry and chemistry becomes biology. And, and honestly, it's one of the most, it's, I think it's one of the most beautiful forces of the four that we have, at least the four that we know as the human race. Yeah, you know, like salt, you can't have salt without you know, an ionic bond, which is like you said, at the very heart of things, a electromagnetic interaction. Oh, I have something to add, if you don't mind. Yeah. So you know how I just said about how you have to have things moving, charged particles moving to be able to create a magnetic field? Well, that's exactly what's not going on with Mars right now. Way back in our Mars colonization, exploration, whatever episode, we talked about how Mars doesn't have a magnetosphere anymore. That's because Mars on the inside does not have anything moving. There's no plate tectonics. There's nothing moving on the, on the inside. It's pretty much a dead planet. And because things aren't moving, there's no magnetic field. So when there's no magnetic field, there's no magnetosphere, and you get this nasty sputtering effect that rips apart the atmosphere. And that's why if you get off the SpaceX Dragon, you, you step off, you don't got a helmet, you're dead. <laughs> it's all thanks to the electromagnetic force. Yeah, well, that's another really cool thing. I'm so glad you brought up, Sam, because you reminded me of that thing. Uh, recently, they sent a... I can't remember the name of the probe. What is it? They sent it to the edge of the the uh, solar system. Do you guys remember what it's called? Voyager? Yeah, Voyager 1 and 2. Voyager, was it? Well, either way, that mission they just sent, you know, to the edge of the solar system. Did you guys read about that? It's so interesting. I mean, they found that there's like a wall of plasma, basically on the other side of the sun's magnetosphere. Magnetosphere is like basically the sphere of influence of the magnetic field of the sun. And on the other side, there's this burning hot plasma. So our literally our solar system is like this capsule protected by the sun. You know, not only does the sun provide us all the energy that we need to create agriculture, which feeds us, keeps us warm, but it also literally is shielding us from deadly ionizing, meaning, you know, it'll tear us apart, radiation from outside of the solar system. The James Webb telescope or? It might also be New Horizons too, because Voyager 1 and 2 went out one of the two voyagers went past the edge of our solar system. 
I think New Horizons was then also another one that did that, but I can't remember which Voyager. Taking them like what twenty or thirty years to get to the edge. It was an older one, and then even the Earth protects us from the uh, more deadly radiation from the sun. So it's like this perfect balance. This force creates a perfect balance for us to survive. Yeah, product of that, the aurora borealis, and then both auroras of the Earth. That's product of us being protected by the electromagnetic force that's generated by the Earth's magnetic field. Like I was just saying, we have stuff moving on the inside of the Earth, creating this shell, this protection. It's pretty neat. But another interesting thing I thought I'd mention that you know people are often interested in is they're actually figuring out how to create thrusters, I think, out of like two, well, a charged particle and like a, um, another charged particle on like a board. Well, I guess you could just say like the solar sails. I guess that's what they're calling them. That's more of actually the photon's momentum getting transferred to the uh, the craft. But there's also these things called like hall thrusters. And I mean, they are created because of the quantum hall effect, but it's, I think, at the root of things, an electromagnetic effect. So they're literally creating engines out of electromagnetism. I mean, maybe the chemistry behind some of the combustion rockets are, you know, electromagnetic, but I don't know. It's really interesting. Yeah, definitely. Eva, you did mention one thing that I wanted to talk about. So we talked about all these things that surround us, but then why aren't we talking about us? And Eva kind of you know, said it a little bit earlier. We are a walking bag of particles. So where there are particles, there are atoms. Where there are atoms, there is the electromagnetic force. And binding atoms together to make the molecules, like I said. Molecules become chemistry and chemistry becomes biology and biology becomes life. I mean, heck, the brain functions on electrochemical signals controlled by not only the electromagnetic force, but in general, it's chemical reactions happening all the time up there. We can say that love is a chemical reaction, joy is a chemical reaction, hate, you name it. Then there's the ability to know that you're full, the ability to know that you're standing on your own two dang feet, and much more. So thanks to the electromagnetic force, we can experience these things and experience life, our definition of life. Yeah, it's like what we talked about with gravity. We have these really microscale interactions, but how do we connect them to these, you know, universe-sized interactions as well? And I just think electromagnetism, you know, you think of like the light from a star that died six billion years ago, and now we're observing it. And, you know, those photons are bouncing off of us so we can see each other. And like, it's just crazy. It's, um, it's really cool. <laughs> you did talk about the electromagnetic spectrum, right? Or you talked about how it's generated. So, I mean, the electromagnetic spectrum is anything from, you know, radio waves all the way up to gamma rays. And there is just such a massive amount of application in there. Obviously, you know, humans, we see just the visible light part of it, but I mean, ultraviolet radiation, which, you know, gives us sunburns and the ability to, to harness solar energy. Uh, we have the infrared, which comes down from the sun and interacts with the earth. And then infrared radiation is emitted, which is technically heat. There's, you know, the radio waves to be able to communicate. There's microwaves to heat your food. There's x-rays to be able to understand things of medicine. It's wide open. There's literally an infinite number of applications, <laughs> literally. So strange how weakly like electromagnetic waves will interact with us too. Like radio waves, there's like millions of them passing through us right now, carrying the information of the world through us and around us. 
It's the reason why our phones have so much information. And then one more thing I wanted to mention is, like, the gravitational effects on, on the electric force. Like, light is normally something that we think of as going straight. But when Einstein created his theory, he, I think that there was a solution to his equations that basically said that it was possible for light to bend around really heavy stuff. So, and then we actually observe it. It's called gravitational lensing. Very interesting tie into gravity from electromagnetism. Oh, yeah. So space-time tells matter how to move, and matter tells space-time how to curve. It's also strange how the higher the energy of the electromagnetic wave, the more difficult it is to, like, deal with. Like, gamma radiation is extremely difficult to, like, you know what I mean? How do you make a gamma radiation light, light bulb? You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> and how do you keep it out of things once you've got it? You know, it's really hard to keep these really powerful rays from getting into stuff. And x-rays, I mean, they're obviously more harmful than some things, but we can actually have found ways to, like, funnel that type of electromagnetic radiation. And, yeah. Oh, and I want to get both your opinions on this. Through different interactions with people, I like to always get people's takes on, you know, different controversial topics. And one of them being these <laughs> 5G. It's so funny because I try to explain them like, listen, the amount of radiation that you get on a day's time, radio, micro, ultraviolet, whatever it may be, adding 5G is not going to affect you the way you think it is. It's not going to turn you into a zombie. It's not going to interact with the chip in your shoulder that makes you go crazy. Heck, you're using a cell phone. You're getting microwaves all the time off your cell phone, but you're also getting an abundance of microwave radiation from a bunch of different applications that are all around you, even from the environment. So do you have anything to add to that or am I spot on by saying that? The biggest and most important thing to think about when it comes to radiation is literally just one word, okay, ionization. The harmful stuff will rip your particles apart, okay? And the 5G stuff does not have enough power. It is very weak, okay? It's literally like nothing. Yeah, I just want to make it abundantly clear to the listeners that your cell phone will not give you cancer. And 5G is also not going to give you cancer. So, yeah, just like want to lay that down very clearly. <laughs> Thank you for, you know, throwing some assurance there to the viewers. But when we come back, we are going to introduce and discuss the third fundamental force, the weak nuclear force, so stick around. Hey, my fellow listener. If you love what you are hearing, my team and I would greatly appreciate it if you threw us some spare change. You know, just so we can continue to make this show better and better for you. To do this, head to our website, everythingsteve.org, and click on the donate button in the top right corner, or go to our support us page. Whichever you choose works for us. If that's too much work, we totally get it. You can slide me some dough via Venmo, and my tag is at ProZoomStudent. Or, conveniently, if you don't have Venmo, throw us some cash on the Cash App. Our tag for Cash App is at EverythingSteam. And at last resort, there's always a subscription option on our official Anchor.fm page. You can subscribe to us monthly for just merely 99 cents. Listen, any little bit helps. And just so you know, we are honored to serve you as your source for Steam information. So thank you for your continued support, and as always, stay curious. You are listening to the third segment of The Four Fundamental Forces. I am your host, Sam Stanford. So to jump right in, the weak nuclear force is the third of four fundamental forces and one of two that make up the electroweak force. 
the electromagnetic force that we just discussed is the other of the electroweak force. So yes, the weak nuclear force is also formally referred to as the weak interaction force. But for this audience and for this episode, we'll just refer to it as the weak force for short. For a time scale, approximately 10 nanoseconds after the Big Bang, or the time it takes your computer to access its memory, the weak force was born due to the cooling expansion of the universe, just like I said at the beginning of the episode. So to break down what the weak nuclear force is, we first need to realize that nuclear pertains to the nucleus of the atom and the electrons that orbit it. And weak, in this sense, doesn't particularly mean that the force is weak. It just means that at the scale of particles in the nucleus, this is the weaker of the two nuclear forces. And the strong nuclear force is the one that we're going to talk about, and that's coming up in the next segment. But in comparison to the other forces in this episode, the weak force is the only one that forces matter to fall apart and decay, while others tend to want to bind things together. So you may ask, how do we even get the weak force? And that calls for a real quick, (laughs) real quick, and simple course of particle physics. So quickly, the standard model of particle physics consists of three different types of particles. There's the energy-carrying particles, there's the mass-carrying particles, and then there's their antiparticle pairs. And that's important for whenever we explain some of the phenomena behind the weak force. But in the particle model, weak force needs both protons and neutrons in the nucleus, you know, if you can recall back to chemistry one, which are made up of both up and down quarks. And quarks are the matter particles that I just told you about in the standard model. The second kind of particle that you need are the energy-carrying particles, which are the W and Z bosons, if you're looking at the standard model. These particles allow the weak force to happen. So to recap, you need the up and down quarks that carry mass and the W and Z bosons that carry energy. So the last piece of the puzzle is the length of effectiveness or pretty much the activation length of the weak force, so when the force actually occurs. So if an electron, proton, or neutron that's in the atom comes close to another particle of different charge, so the protons, electrons, and neutrons, like say an electron comes really close to a proton, or a proton comes really close to a neutron, then they exchange those W and Z bosons, which are those energy-carrying particles. So when the W and Z bosons are exchanged, they change the atoms by changing the quarks that make up the protons and neutrons. And they either alter or emit a new electron. It's pretty cool stuff. And there's other things that happen, and and we'll get to that in a second. But just remember that the length of effectiveness is what activates the transfer of the bosons. And then it's pretty much the summation of the weak force. So that length, which this is really cool if if you want to talk about numbers, the length is only about 10% of the diameter of a proton. And that's so small, like super small. That's like if you took a dust particle, like if you're just sitting there and like the lights, you know, coming through your window and you see a dust particle floating around. If you took that dust particle and cut it up a trillion times, which is a million times a thousand, that's how small 
of an activation length it is. So we're talking about a force on a really, really small scale compared to the other forces that we've been talking about. But anyways, because of this close encounter and the length of effectiveness and the boson exchange, it allows the alteration of atoms. So there are three cases for the changing of atoms with the weak force. And the first is electron capture. It's not widely known, but it's something that happens all the time around us. And this is a very special case where an atom has an excess number of protons to neutrons in a nucleus. So because of this, an electron in the nearest orbital shell, if you're picturing an atom and, and the electrons moving around the nucleus, what happens is the electron falls into the nucleus. And when the electron falls into that length of effectiveness near the excess proton, a W boson is exchanged, changing the quarks of the proton so that the proton becomes a neutron, pretty much, you know, achieving equilibrium. So lastly, because of the electron falling near the uh, length of effectiveness, the electron becomes a neutrino and is ejected from the atom. And what a neutrino is, is really an electron pretty much without an electric charge, which makes sense because the proton, which is positively charged, becomes a neutrally charged particle from adding a negative charge from that electron. It's just think of it as one minus one equals zero. You're taking the charge away from that particle in the nucleus. So the relevance to this is quite slim, but it's essentially the universe achieving equilibrium and keeping an atom with excess protons in check. You know, with respect to those altered electrons called neutrinos, this is also really cool. A hundred trillion neutrinos pass through your body every second on Earth, from mostly the sun, but also the universe at large. And that's a lot of neutrinos, but it doesn't particularly mean anything because there's no charge and there's relatively no mass. But it's super cool that we have all these things passing through our body and we can't even tell. You know, I wanted to knock out the electron capture first because in my opinion, the next thing I'm gonna talk about, which is beta decay, is way more interesting and has so many applications. And I'll explain two applications after I explain beta decay. But beta decay is the process of neutrons becoming protons or vice versa. So kind of like electron capture, this is where there are either too many protons or too many neutrons in the nucleus. And the nucleus is just trying to seek equilibrium. But in this case, the electrons don't really become involved. Electron capture is, is actually a lot less likely to occur, but beta decay is happening at a massive scale everywhere. So in relation to the weak force, beta decay ensues because the exchange of those W and Z bosons that change matter particles within the neutrons or protons, just like how I talked about before. So to jump into that, there are two types of beta decay, which I already kind of Easter egged earlier. You have beta minus decay, which is where a neutron becomes a proton and subsequently an electron and anti-neutrino are released. And this is because the neutron and proton exchange those bosons and it changes the nucleus composition. So I'll explain a anti-neutrino real quick because it's pretty cool. An anti-neutrino is the antiparticle of the neutrinos. Like I said, there's the mass particles, there's the energy particles, and there's the antiparticles. So this is the antiparticle of the neutrino. So if the antineutrino and neutrino met in space, they'd annihilate each other and create a little energy explosion, which is pretty cool. But essentially beta minus decay creates new elements. 
because a neutron is becoming a proton. This is pretty neat stuff. But then let me talk about beta plus decay, which is the second type of beta decay, which is the process of a proton then becoming a neutron with subsequent creation of a positron and neutrino. So it's pretty much the same thing. It's just roles reversed. And instead of having a new element being created, it's just an isotope of the same element being created. The subsequent creation of the positron and neutrino is actually really important. A positron is the antiparticle of the electron. So just like the neutrino and, and antiparticle pair that I just talked about, if an electron and positron were playing chicken in space, they would both lose and annihilate each other. In the case of beta plus decay, there's, you know, this is where the isotopes are created, like I said. So there's two types of relevancy that I want to talk about. And the first one is radiometric dating, which calls upon both beta decay, both types of beta decay. It's typically used for dating specimens such as rocks, fossils, and carbon-based materials. Scientists will they'll, they'll take a specimen, they'll identify the necessary elements within the specimen, and then through understanding beta decay, they can map or trace back the elements of when the specimen formed. And we talked about that in the Earth's mass extinction episode. The most well-known examples of this are uranium-238 to lead-206 for typical rocks and fossils. And then there's also carbon-14 to nitrogen-14, which is typical for dating just carbon-based specimens. And that's used in paleontology, geology, anthropology, and, and many other fields. So the second and most important, in, in my opinion, is nuclear fusion. Like we talked about before, like what Dylan was saying, is that thanks to gravity, we have helium and hydrogen. They get pulled together to form the majority of stars. And because of the high density and temperature, nuclear fusion causes super fast beta decay in the order of like a thousandth of a second. And what happens is, so two hydrogen atoms are traveling around and, you know, circulating throughout the star and they smash together allowing the strong nuclear force to bind them together, effectively creating a really unstable helium, and it's called helium-2. Then the weak force takes over. This is where the weak force comes in, and it triggers positive beta decay to create some form of stability. So it, it, it can be mapped by the famous equation, Einstein's famous equation equals mc squared. The mass of the hydrogen on impact turns into energy, pure energy. And that energy is expelled and it travels to Earth or the universe at large. So that's one way we get energy from the sun. And subsequent to that, to the positive beta decay, a, that positron is expelled, which is an anti-electron. And that positron annihilates an electron within the star, creating a gamma ray. And that gamma ray then escapes the core and it travels to the Earth, creating sunlight for us here and also the greater universe at large. It starts as a gamma ray, but effectively, once it gets out of the sun, it's more like ultraviolet or a more, quote-unquote, cooled-down type of radiation. It's pretty cool. I mean, to add on to the impact of the positron, after annihilation, a free proton remains and collides with beta-decayed helium-2, the helium-2 that I talked about earlier, and it creates helium-3. And from there, I mean, there's other possibilities, but essentially the two types that I just talked about with beta decay creates 80% of the energy and radiation that the sun gives off. So in essence, thanks to the weak force, 
nuclear fusion powers stars and brings us heat and light. And interestingly enough, this fundamental understanding of nuclear fusion with the weak force is how thermonuclear bombs, or more widely known as hydrogen bombs, were invented. I'll open it up to the floor. I mean, I mean, what is the universe without the weak interaction force or the weak force? Yeah, I just want to make sure I'm understanding it all correctly. That So inside of stars, we have this really fast beta decay and these positrons are flying around and annihilating electrons. And that's how gamma radiation is happening, is that they're annihilating the electrons. That's really interesting. And Einstein's most famous equation that E equals MC squared is really mystifying until you see it in action. (laughs) And then you're like, oh, I can't believe we can prove something like this. Like, where does the mass go? <laughs> and it does. It's energy now. Right. And the amazing thing is he he conceptualized this without really even, you know, kind of like seeing it with his own eyes. It's almost amazing. Uh, well, it is amazing. But heck, life wouldn't be able to exist if, you know, we didn't have fusion, really. There wouldn't be light or heat. It seems very interesting to think about, like, what the world would look like without it, like, and in particular, what the world's going to look like in the future with it, like with nuclear fusion, yeah. That's going to be really interesting. I mean, hopefully it'll be cheap power and not so much uh, waste for, like, fission produces. Very true. Yeah, that's a good point. I've talked about it off air, definitely with Eva a few times, is that China has been able to make a nuclear fusion reactor. And through the second test that they ran, I think it ran for like a thousand seconds or like 17 minutes or something like that, which is really revolutionary. I mean, we're playing with, you know, we would be above tier one of the Fermi paradox if we could actually make that a thing. It's also five times hotter than the sun, (laughs) which is like crazy. Why would we ever need that? But, you know, if we could really find a way to harness these, you know, subatomic forces, Just think of like that boundless energy that we could produce for ourselves. But unfortunately, it doesn't seem to end up that way because we're using it for like sinister purposes. (laughs) Hopefully not in the future, but you know, you never know. Honestly, for the fusion reactor, just to be just to add to it, like the opportunity is endless to be able to have fusion reactors to take us to other planets or celestial bodies. You know, instead of having to salt the roads in PA, we could use a fusion reactor, just like kind of like how Iceland does with geothermal. Like they never salt the roads. It's always just melted by geothermal heat, which is amazing. I mean, you could power whole dang countries and stuff like that. I mean, it's just the scale of heat and energy off of that is just nuts and five times the sun. I mean, but uh, there's also a couple other ones that I wanted to mention real quick is that if we were living in an alternate reality where we didn't have the sun for some reason, it would be really hard to just kind of tell the tale of history because we use that as another mode of understanding how old fossils are and and just dating different specimens that we find in the field and also medical technology, uh, such as like diagnostic procedures and radiotherapy and sterilization just wouldn't be able to be a thing. So modern medicine would be totally different. And also there's a lot of different things that I've seen in manufacturing that's used for like understanding thicknesses of films and and, uh, seams of textiles and stuff like that. It's very applicable. It would just be different. First of all, life wouldn't exist, but if it could, it'd be not the same. All right, uh, let's wrap up the segment and head to our last commercial. 
And when we return, Eva will be introducing the last of the four fundamental forces, the strong nuclear force. Like what you hear? Do us a favor by giving us a follow, review, and share our content on social media. Everything Steam is conveniently on Twitter, Instagram, Reddit, Facebook, and TikTok. You can listen to our episodes that will feature on platforms such as Anchor, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Breaker. If you, the listener, have any content suggestions or want to be a guest star on the show, reach out to Everything Steam via social media, our Contact Us page on our website, or email us at all lowercase everythingsteam3.14 at gmail.com. We look forward to hearing from you and stay curious. Hello, hello. If you've been keeping track so far, this is the last force to cover and the first fundamental force that came into existence in the early stages of our universe, really close to the Big Bang. That force is the strong nuclear force. And so I'm going to hand it over to Eva, where she'll give you the details on the strong nuclear force. You have the floor. Thank you. So strong force in one sentence is the force that holds the protons of the nucleus of an atom together. Uh, So typically we think of protons, they are positively charged, right? So why are they staying together in an atom? They should be repelled by each other. Like we talked about with electromagnetism, these alike charges should be repelling. But it turns out at very close distances, strong force can overcome the electromagnetic force. And there's this cute little analogy that people like to use about strong force is that it's like a T-Rex because it's really strong, but it's got short little arms And it drops off really quickly after a certain distance because of its short little arms, um, which I just think is cute and fun because I love a T-Rex. But the way that it works, that strong force works, is it holds the protons at a fixed distance that actually increases with the diameter of a proton. So if you think of like a mechanical spring almost, where you've got two protons at the end and it's stretching and stretching and stretching till it reaches a certain distance, And at that distance, it takes a tremendous amount of force to break the spring or to break strong force. And that's why they call it strong force, because it's so strong at these distances. The other thing that it does is it holds the particles that make up protons, like Sam talked about, quarks, together. So these particles of matter can exchange energy and forces by transferring bosons, which Sam also talked about. They are force-carrying particles together, the one being responsible for strong force is called the gluon because it's the glue that holds these quarks together. And so similar to interactions between protons, the quarks inside of the proton are held at a fixed length as well. And when quarks are split apart, it releases the quark and anti-quark pair following Einstein's equation equals mc squared. So Sam talked about a lot of this particle physics already, but yeah, this huge amount of energy is released when quarks are split apart or when the nucleus of an atom is split apart because That's what's necessary to break the strong force. So on an atomic scale, every element that's heavier than hydrogen is held together by strong force. So any element that has more than one proton is held together by strong force. And because it's so short range, it can only bind adjacent protons and neutrons together. And this explains why very heavy elements are unstable. So if you have a really heavy element like lead that has I don't know the atomic number of lead, whatever it is, how many protons are in it is way greater than, you know, a helium atom. And it's unstable and it can be radioactive. So like I should use uranium as my example. 
uranium is a really heavy element and it's radioactive because the protons inside are competing with the electrostatic forces and the strong force that's trying to hold them together. So now let's talk about star formation because these are the conditions in nature that we really see strong force in action. So inside of a stellar nursery, most of the gas is hydrogen and large clouds of hydrogen have the potential under the right conditions without going into all the astrophysics to collapse into something called a protostar, depending on the gravitational properties of the, the cloud. So the core of the star is where all of this gas is like collapsing into because of gravity. And it continues to heat as more and more gas collapses around it. So heavier atoms are more likely to fuse in this environment, but they're only trace elements. You have to really hit the sufficient temperature and pressure to get hydrogen to fuse into helium via strong force. Sam also talked about this earlier, the important concept of fusion inside of the sun. So at temperatures and pressures inside the sun's core, I'll just throw out some numbers. Inside of the sun's core, there the pressure is 3.84 trillion PSI, and the temperature of fusion in the sun is 15 million degrees Celsius. So you can imagine that these like high temperatures, particles are moving really, really fast. And at these high pressures, they can get really close to each other. So this is the condition in which that protons can get close enough that strong force overcomes the electrostatic force. And so when fusion happens, like Sam said, it releases huge amounts of energy in the form of gamma rays or, you know, other forms of radiation from the sun. So that fusion is really where we see strong force in action. Yeah, then I was going to talk about the fusion reactor that is five times hotter than the sun, but we covered that. So, yeah. But the way that works that I looked up is that under the direction of really, really strong uh, magnetic fields that are used to accelerate these particles, the hydrogen ions, they are just single protons, under magnetic fields can get accelerated and they smash into each other. And because it's being held by this magnetic field, they continue to stay together. And yeah, that reactor in China, that's five times hotter than the sun, burned for like 20 minutes, which is a huge achievement and it's crazy. Isn't kind of like that the same basis for the particle accelerators where we're taking ionized atoms, like you said, just like a singular proton or even just maybe electrons, and we're accelerating them to clash into each other? Isn't that kind of like the same concept? Yeah, it very much is. So when we want to measure strong force or even weak force, you have to get these atoms going so fast that their momentum is able to transfer and they kind of stick together before, you know, either annihilating each other or releasing energy or forming a new element out of those two. So, you know, those like spots on the periodic table where there's like the unnamed elements that we know should exist theoretically, but are only stable for a few milliseconds. That's how they make those is they make these unstable, really, really heavy nuclei that they can't stay stable long enough to like, you know, stay together with strong force because the electromagnetic force is too strong. I guess for somebody who is getting introduced to particle physics and is interested in learning more about it, how would you guys, like, in one sentence, I mean, of course, maybe not one sentence, maybe two or three, but how would you compare and contrast the weak and the strong force? Like, because it seems like the strong force, like you said, overcomes the electromagnetic force, you know, that's trying to push these protons apart. So I guess how could you compare and contrast that to the weak force? 
So one of the differences is the distance scale that they work on. So strong force, while it does act at distances smaller than the diameter of a proton, it is longer than the weak force. So that's one of the differences is that strong force can, it can operate at distances between protons versus weak force, which seems to stay within the proton itself or between these, you know, subprotonic particles. And the fundamental act of the two forces are different. One is pulling and binding something together, whereas the other one is decaying and changing the aspect of the atom. It's totally different. I mean, both are trying to seek equilibrium, but they seek it in different ways. From what you guys described, the weak force is almost like inside of the nucleons. Nucleons being like the particles that are in the nucleus. That's the strong force. The strong force deals with the nucleons. Uh, the weak force can be interactions between anything in an atom. Yeah. Another difference that I'd like to point out is that strong force does not generate all these other particles through decay. I think you were just trying to reinforce what I was saying is that, you know, one, the weak force deals with, with decay, whereas the strong force deals with binding uh, the nucleons together. Right. So both of these forces have the power to fundamentally change the qualities of a material, but a weak force can change a proton from to a neutron versus strong force, which works on a bigger scale, like it can change an atom to a different type of element. It can change elements into each other. But, you know, weak force does that through a different mechanism, and it really transforms, like, the qualities that that material has. All right. Well, that helps a lot. Yeah. You know, the atom, as they used to say, is the building block of matter. That's not the case anymore. If you really want to get interested in how life works and those simplistic building blocks of true life, then particle physics is for you. It's really, really cool. Just the standard model alone that we have now is so intricate and beautiful. And just even, you know, understanding annihilation of particle and antiparticle interaction is so interesting. And this is kind of a cool tidbit. We've talked about dark energy for the last couple episodes and episodes beforehand. And the earliest, I guess, hypotheses behind dark energy was that it was because of this particle-antiparticle interaction from annihilation creating energy pretty much in the vastness of space. It's pushing things apart, accelerating the universe as we know it. But that's actually not the case. But it's just really cool how, how we can conceptualize this beautiful behavior and create matter that creates life. I do want to close out with some sort of reflection and then finish out with a cool little question here. So if you take a quick step back and just look at the sequence it's kind of really neat in my book. So as I originally said, the progression of the universe started with this primordial soup of the Big Bang. And as time progressed, the universe expanded and cooled, giving rise to the strong, the electroweak, and gravitational forces. And in big picture terms, the fundamental forces of physics support or become chemistry. And then chemistry, along with the support, can become biology which is life, meaning that with the right combinations laid out by physics, life has the chance to exist anywhere in the cosmos. I would like to close with this question, starting with Eva. Why did you choose the path of physics? Yeah, that's a good question. I think it really comes down to like what you were saying is that physics is really the foundation of 
chemistry, which is the foundation of biology. And that's how we can relate ourselves to our place in the universe. And I think it's a really important thing that people should study because it does put everything into perspective for, you know, where we are and where we need to go and where we should go. So I just think it's a very important subject scientifically and also like morally to bring you perspective about where you are and what where you came from. And that's from the Big Bang and stars and all these forces interacting with each other produced you. And that's like amazing. So I think that's one of the reasons that I like to study. Great answer. Dylan, what's your take? I remember being, you know, a little younger and I really liked logic. You know, I really liked things that made me feel comfortable in my reasoning. And physics really does seem like the most sound application of logic to reality. It's the very foundation of physics, you know, mathematics. And mathematics, the foundation is logic. And so, you know, we have this beautiful field where we're we're merging this, you know, logical rigor with reality. So we can take reality and finally, hopefully someday, you know, of course not yet, but <laughs> someday we'll have a very rigorous and logical understanding of how things are happening. So I like physics because it makes some sense. <laughs> yeah, there's less opinionated discussion in this field. Honestly, I love both of reasons why that you chose physics. And another good one uh, is that, and this is the whole precipice of why we're doing this podcast, is that one of the greatest tools that you can use in life to settle quarrels that are full of unconscious bias and and just personal beliefs and, and personal truths, you can use logic from physics that, you know, the understanding of reality, the understanding of what goes on in life to help settle those differences and dispositions. So thank you so much, Eva, and thank you, Dylan, for this. This was a lot of fun, especially just trying to get your take on what physics truly means to you and what physics truly is. So appreciate it. This was a great episode. Thanks for having me, Sam. Thank you. That is all for this episode of The Four Fundamental Forces. Now I'd like to give a big shout out to my guest stars, Eva and Dylan, for sharing their knowledge and vast expertise. I would also love to mention my amazing team for their collective efforts to make this show happen. As I mentioned before in the episode, please do us a favor and give us some feedback by filling out the community poll for which force you thought was most fascinating. Or heck, even send us an email or DM us your thoughts. We're always looking to engage with our followers. If you find physics fascinating, and who wouldn't, give us a follow on social media. We share physics information and memes daily for your benefit. You can find us on most, if not all, social media platforms just by searching Everything Steam. As for a follow-up to this episode, I highly recommend that you go read Astrophysics for People in a Hurry by Dr. Neil deGrasse Tyson. It's a fantastic short book that really simplifies the topics, but gives examples and representations of how the universe behaves and what the universe is made up of. It's personally one of my favorite books. Lastly, after this episode, give our podcast a rating and review on whatever platform you get your podcasts on. We're always looking for feedback. Once again, thank you all for listening to Everything Steam. I am your host, Sam Stanford, and as always, stay curious. Everything Steam would like to give a shout out to Anchor by Spotify for sponsoring our podcast along with Ben Sound Music for providing our show with intro, outro, and advertising background rhythm.